Amen. Thanks, John. If you've got a Bible um, in front of you, one of the church Bibles, we're on page 1045. We're going to read from Acts chapter 13, and I'm going to read the first 12 verses. So page 1045. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the sorcerer, for this is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from um, from their tried to sorry about that tried to turn the proconsul from their faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimas and said, "You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you." You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. don't know about blindness this morning, but I'm going to have to start wearing my glasses when I do Bible readings. <laughs> Let's just pray again, shall we? Lord, we pray that your word will speak to our hearts today. Just thank you for the victory that you have over all the powers of darkness and evil. And Lord, today as we also remember communion, we remember that you have died, you have risen, and you are returning. So Lord, as we look at this passage of scripture, we stand in your victory this morning. Lord, speak to us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you're a driven person. Anybody want to admit to being quite driven in everyday life? Perhaps at work, or perhaps if you get on the sports field, or perhaps if you go to watch your football team. Are you driven? Do you have to be the best at everything you do? Anybody want to admit to being like that? Yeah, there's a few hands going up here or there. Now, sorry if you were here last Sunday night. I, I will have spoiled this slightly for you, but I came across this the other week. This duck looking into a plane. Do you have a moment to talk about Jesus. There's a real danger, I think, in our Christian lives that, that we become just as driven in terms of trying to serve Jesus as we do in the rest of our life, and that many things can drive us. It can be, we can be driven by guilt. We looked at that a few weeks ago. We can be driven by good intentions, like the duck. You know, good intentions. I want to talk to people about Jesus, but we get the timing horribly wrong because we're driving ourselves. We can be driven by success, you know, we, we want to be part of a church that is reaching out. We want to see people come to faith in Jesus. 
We can be driven by reputation. We can be driven by desiring to please other people. But we end up with duck moments if we're not careful. There was a book that was published a few years ago, and I think as a church you actually had a sermon series that went through it called The Purpose Driven Life. Now, I remember a few years ago hearing a bloke called George Cavour, who is a Bible college principal in, in Bristol, talking about, not the book, but the title of this book. And he said, you know, I object to the title of this book. And I was thinking, why is that? And he said, because the Christian life is not driven. The Christian life is never to be a driven life, but rather it is to be a led life. It is to be a life that is led by the Holy Spirit, not a life that is driven by anything that comes from inside of us, but led by the Spirit. And that's what we find in these verses that I attempted to read earlier. And we find that this is all about worship and it's about mission, the first part of these verses. What's the end result of mission? You know, if we're reaching out to our friends and our neighbors, we tell them about Jesus, and they become Christians, what happens? Worship takes place. Those who've been reached become worshipers. Where does mission start? Well, we find out that mission starts in this chapter in worship. When a group of people who acknowledge Jesus is Lord worship, they then are fueled up by that by desiring to see other people come to know Jesus. There's a song, um, I don't know if you've ever sung it as a church, by Matt Redman, written a few years ago, called Let Worship Be the Fuel for Missions Flame. That whole idea that as we acknowledge who Jesus is, we desire more people to come to know him. But before we get to that bit, let's have a look at a little bit of the context of what's going on in this church in Antioch. Because Luke starts to tell us that there's prophets and teachers there, we'll, we'll come back to that as well. But he also tells us a list of the people who are in this church. If you've got your Bibles there, just have a look at this list. This is really interesting. Luke never does anything by accident. You know, he's a doctor, he's deliberate, he's well thought out. He's telling us these names for a reason. We've got Barnabas. We've got Simeon, called Niger. That just means that Simeon, he he was a black man. It just means the black. He was probably from North Africa, probably from one of the Roman territories um, across the north of Africa. We then have Lucius of Cyrene. That's a great Latin name, probably a Roman man. And Manian, somebody from the royal court of yet another King Herod. We won't go into who that one is. Um, And Saul, who later becomes Paul. Why does Luke mention all these people? Why is this significant? If you hear a few weeks back, we were looking at um, the, the vision that Peter had of the sheep coming down from heaven with the animals on it. And the interpretation of that vision was that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles as well. It's for the whole world. What does Jesus say? Go into all nations and make disciples. What do we find here at Antioch as the church is worshipping? There's the church of all nations. Here in this town up in what is now Syria, there is a gathered community of people from all nations. And verse 2, it says, while, key word, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. Again, we'll come back to what the Holy Spirit said in a minute. But it says they were worshipping. Worshipping is just about giving Jesus the honour he deserves. Now, we know they're praying. They might have been singing. They might have been declaring God's word to one another through the apostles' teaching because it says there were teachers there. There were prophets there. But then you get this word, they were fasting. 
They were fasting. Now, I might be getting this horribly wrong, and you can shout at me if I am, but I don't reckon, as Christians, we talk a lot about fasting at the moment. Now, you've probably done a sermon series last year, 10 weeks on fasting, and you're probably going to be telling me, that's absolute rubbish. But going back 10 years, fasting was quite a big thing, sort of in evangelical circles. You know, certainly in the church that I was part of, we talked a lot about the need for fasting and prayer. Am I right in thinking we don't talk a lot about fasting? Go on, give me a nod, otherwise I'll be turning three pages forward. And you'll miss the next section of what I'm talking about. But fasting is, is really fascinating in terms of New Testament worship. Because it comes time and time again. You see that they were there praying and they were fasting. It comes twice, just in a couple of verses here. Jesus taught about fasting. Jesus never commands us to fast. But it's almost a presumption that as Christians, we will fast. Look at this verse. This is Jesus speaking. He says, the attendance of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? Then he added, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. You don't fast when the bridegroom is there. Jesus is talking about himself there. The disciples didn't fast when he was there because the bridegroom was present. He's been to a wedding recently. Anybody? Or going to one? Yeah, I've got a niece who's getting married fairly soon. Now, I'd be a bit alarmed if we went to her after sort of wedding bash and there was nothing. It was a fast. I would think great way of celebrating. But you fast after that has taken place. This is what Jesus says here. When the bridegroom has been taken, then the fasting comes. In the early church, fasting becomes something that they do quite regularly. Something that is linked very much with prayer and a deep desire to see the things of the Spirit come into the life of the church. But I wonder why we don't talk about it. It's something that happens. We talk about prayer. We talk about other things. Yet we don't talk a lot about fasting. Well, I wonder sometimes we get a bit confused as to what it's for, or we think it all sounds a bit legalistic. You know, I'm having to stop eating on this day. I'm having to stop doing this on that day. We find in the New Testament, most fasting is from food and drink. Most, but not all. Paul talks about married couples fasting from sex for a time to devote themselves to prayer. There are also cases in the Bible where people fast from sleep, again, to devote themselves from prayer. But basically, what fasting is about is coming before the Lord and taking our mind off material desire. And coming saying, you know, I am serious about prayer. I am serious and longing that God's Spirit will move. I'm serious enough to put aside those desires that my body has so I can focus on the things of the Lord. How did Jesus start his ministry? Go on. 40 days of fasting. Anyone fancy that? 40 days fasting, so that he could attune himself to his father's will, so that he could have the spiritual strength to start his ministry. Now remember, it's not a command. Jesus never says, you must, but it's presumed that we will. Now, you may this morning, you, you may have some medical condition that means that fasting from food is simply not a good idea and could be very unwise. But we can still take the time off other things to focus on prayer. Now, how many distractions do we have in modern life? Loads. You know, TV, internet, social media, goodness knows what else that we, we do in our lives socially. You know, just to put some of those things on one side for a set period of time and say, Lord, I'm focusing this space, this time, on prayer. I'm praying and fasting. Fasting shows our seriousness before the Lord. It shows our humility before the Lord. It shows that the prayers that we are praying matter deeply to us. 
but it isn't about arm-twisting God. You know, we don't fast as if we're sort of getting God's arm off his back and saying, because I'm doing all this great stuff, you will answer me. It's not about that. It's about having our hearts in the right place. It's also not something that we do with a great deal of fanfare. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard somebody say something like this, would you like a biscuit? Oh, no, I couldn't possibly. I'm fasting. That really sort of defeats the object. (laughs) Fasting is between us and the Lord. That act of humility before God. So can I encourage us as a church? It's something we perhaps need to put back on our radar. Something we need to have there as a way of coming before the Lord seriously in prayer. Being open to God without the distractions of our everyday needs. So here, the church is focused, it's worshipping, it's giving honour and glory to God. So this is the context of where they are. All these things going on. And it's into this context that the Holy Spirit speaks. You know, we, we talk as a church about being led by the Spirit. But if you want to be led by the Spirit, we have to give space for the Spirit to lead us. We have to have the right context for the Spirit to lead us, and we have to have space for the Holy Spirit to speak. You know, God can speak anytime, anywhere, any place. And as you read through your Bible, you will find that he does do that. You know, God spoke through a donkey, didn't he? We don't need to forget that, you know, if God can speak through donkeys in the Old Testament, he can speak in any way, shape, or form. But there are things that we can do that provide a safe context to encounter the living God. Luke isn't offering us a blueprint here. He's not saying this is how the church would always discern what the Spirit is saying. But I think there are really helpful pointers. You know, if we want to hear God's Spirit speaking to us as a church, we need to be committed to Jesus. We need to be word-based. We need to be serious about desiring God's voice to speak to us. When we meet as a church, say in a church meeting, is that what we're coming expectant to hear? Or are we thinking we'll be talking about business issues of the church? You know, when we meet to pray, we've had some great meetings of prayer and worship over the last couple of weeks. Do come along to those. Is it Wednesday, Nick, the next one? Come Wednesday night. No, just chance to be open to God. But are we coming expectant that we'll be led by the Spirit? Or are we just thinking it's another chance to sit and, I don't know, just reflect? But the early church here in Antioch, they do all these things, and then God speaks. So the prophetic word comes. So there's another question. What is prophecy in the New Testament setting? What does it look like when God speaks? We haven't got the, the time this morning to sort of unpack the difference between New Testament and Old Testament prophecy. But when the church meets together and the Holy Spirit speaks to the church, it is something incredibly rich and is something incredibly beautiful. Now, I used to think that when the Holy Spirit spoke, it, it was all about just saying something that would take place in the future. But actually, it's much richer than that. It's much deeper than that. I believe it's God revealing his tender heart to his people. It's God revealing something of himself to his people in the here and now. Sometimes that does look forward. If you read back in Acts chapter 11, there was a famine. And the Holy Spirit had already given the church a prophetic word to say, you need to prepare for this. This is coming. Here, what happens? Well, it's not that specific. It's just the setting apart of two people to go on an evangelistic mission. Setting apart of two people. But it's God revealing his heart. But you know when God speaks in the here and now? When as a church we discern that God is saying something to us, 
it will always, always, always be in line with Scripture. Can't underline that enough. It will always be in line with Scripture. If you're having a conversation with somebody and you said something, and then a few seconds later you said something totally opposite to what you just said, people wouldn't take you very seriously, would they? They'd think you were sort of changing opinion too readily. You'd become known as being hypocritical. You know, if we think like that as human beings, how much is the God who knows everything going to be consistent with himself? God will always be consistent. He will always, if he speaks to us now, it will be in line with his word. If it contradicts his word, what do we do? We dismiss it, because it's not from the Lord. It's not from the Lord. When God speaks to us, either individually or as a church, it will be a blessing. The gifts of the Spirit, of which prophecy is one of them, are given to build the church up. They're not playthings, they're not toys, but they're given so that as a church, as individuals, we can do God's will. You know, God will speak if we listen. God will speak if we desire to be led by his Spirit. God is continually speaking to us through the Scriptures, and let's never forget that. We shouldn't be so obsessed with trying to generate what God is saying in the here and now that we forget that God has spoken through the Scriptures and will always do so. And let's not remember that we can't demand that God will speak either. There are times where God graciously speaks, but there are also times when actually he doesn't. He doesn't speak in the here and now. And we have to be very careful that we don't try and sort of make things fit to what we want to happen. There have been times in my life when I've been desperate for God to speak, and I've just felt that actually God hasn't said anything. So I've come to quite desperate measures, and not for a while, this, don't think I'm doing this at the moment, but you know, you get your word for today, and you're reading through, and every little thing you think, you think, is that God saying it to me? Is this possibly the Lord? And you start going down all kinds of garden paths, because God will speak when he is ready to speak. I don't know if you know any of the old stories about people opening the Bible at random, you know, and sort of pointing the finger, saying, what is God saying? Are we saying this and this to me? There's one I came across, and I quite like this one. It was about a man who was going on a missionary journey, and he was desperate that God would tell him what he needed to take on this journey. Now, how should he spiritually prepare himself? So he opened his Bible, and his finger went to Genesis 7, verse 2. And he said, take with you seven pairs of every every kind of clean animal, a male and his mate, and one pair of every unclean animal. So he didn't like the sound of that. So he thought, well, the Lord must surely guide me in another way. Surely I need to take more spiritual things with me. So he he turned again. Luke 9, verse 3. Take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. You know, there are massive dangers when we try and generate that kind of thing of, you know, what is God saying? The context is so important in this chapter. It's rooted in the word. We discern it. We pray we fast, and it's in the context of the body of Christ. You know, we are still being blessed by what happened in Acts chapter 13. Look at who was set apart for this missionary journey. Saul, Paul, and Barnabas. Paul would become the greatest church planter the church has probably ever known. He would take the word of God right the way across the Roman world. He would also, as a result of that, end up writing a massive chunk of the New Testament we have in front of us. Because the church had been wanted to be led by the Spirit, because they'd got the context right, God has spoken, we are still being blessed. There's a big question, I think, for us as a church, and the question is, what next? And I think it's it's always a question that every church should have on its radar, if you like. 
know, if you look around this morning, just look around for a second. You know, the building, even with the children out, is pretty full. That's a great thing. What a great problem to have as a church, that we're pretty full on Sunday mornings. There are kind of questions here. What is God calling us to do now? Now, over the last few months, you've been probably answering those by saying, the new minister will tell us when he comes. <laughs> the new youth worker will tell us when he comes. That, that's been my prayer afterwards. Um, <laughs> but we ask those questions, don't we? What next? It's actually a great place to be. Verse 2 is a good place to be. The context for us, now I hope we have all those things in the life of our church, but what we need is the Spirit's voice speaking to us. But if we want to be led by the Spirit, we've got to give space for the Spirit to lead. You know, in fact, every church should routinely find itself back at verse 2. Every church should find itself there. I was talking to um, Victoria from Oasis. I think most of you have probably heard um, her speak before um, this week. And she was just sharing with me something of the vision she's had for Gorton and how that God has consistently exceeded what he has given her. So, you know, she's had a a vision or or a a word given that something should take place and then God has just gone way beyond what she'd ever imagined would happen. But I can't imagine she's the kind of person who who would not go back to verse 2, not get back to the place of saying, okay, Lord, time for more worship, time for more prayer, time for more fasting. What next? What next? The beginning of this chapter... Remember I said this is a partial fulfillment of the vision that had been given for the church being of all nations? Supposing the Christians had just said, well, that's it now. You know, we're here. We're all representatives of different nations. Let's just worship and pray. And Well, that'll do, won't it? But no, that is not the final point. Get back to verse 2. Get back to prayer. Get back to fasting. And ask the Lord to lead. So the question for us, will we listen to God's Holy Spirit? Or will we try and drive ourselves? Will we listen and give space and time for God to speak to us as a church? Or will we just come with our good ideas and then wonder why it doesn't quite seem to be as coherent as it could be? Let's be a church that gets back to verse 2. To listen and ask God to speak to us. Let's look what happens very briefly next. Paul and Barnabas set out, and it's not all plain sailing. Well, actually, for Paul, actually, the sailing is okay. But it's what happens next that isn't very easy. Because they go straight from this time of being set apart straight into opposition. You know, opposition can come in different ways. It can come through human beings. We saw last week how um, Herod was the opposer of the church. This week, we see in this um, chapter that it's spiritual opposition by the name of a man called Bar-Jesus. Look at this verse from Ephesians 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I've got um, a Gmail email account. And I've had it probably since um, Google first started up. It's quite a while, isn't it? I don't know how long it was. Um, But the problem is with having an email account for a long time is you get quite a lot of spam email that comes in. And I regularly get emails that say something like this. Dear Mr. Bramwell, we have a million dollars that we'd like to put into your bank account. Now, I don't have any friends, sadly, that are offering to do that. If you do want to do that for me this afternoon, that's absolutely fine. But it's a scam, isn't it? You can see straight through it. 
I don't think any of us would be taken in by that kind of scam. But those kind of spam emails, they go out in the vain hope that just somebody somewhere will fall for it and empty their bank account into somebody else's. You know, sometimes evil that we encounter that comes in opposition to the gospel is so blatant that we think, really? Is that the best you can do? But look what's happening here. Look at the name of this sorcerer. He's called Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, son of a saviour. Is that a coincidence? Or do you think it's just a straightforward counterfeit from the devil to try and get this proconsul who seems very interested in the word of God off course? Look what Luke tells us. Sergius Paulus. Luke tells us he was an intelligent man. You know, he's got his wits about him and he wants to hear Saul. And notice how Saul now starts to use the the Roman version of his name, Paul. Nothing spiritual about this. It's just very practical. He's now speaking to Gentiles. Let's use the version of the name that makes more sense. And so Paul speaks straight to this man who's a sorcerer. And he says, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything right. The confrontation of spiritual evil we see time and time again in the New Testament is part of the gospel call. If we encounter evil that is coming against people and preventing them from receiving the truth of the gospel, then we are to confront it. But we also need to realize that Jesus already has the victory. It's nothing to do with us. It's nothing to do with Paul at this point. It's Jesus' victory. Hebrews 2, verses 14, 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, that is, the devil, and freed those and all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. You know, Jesus frees us from the powers of darkness. Jesus has defeated the powers of darkness. But the devil is still searching around for people to devour. He's a defeated enemy, but he will still try and oppose the gospel. And until Jesus returns, until Jesus returns in glory that victory is not finally announced. But look at these words from Romans 16. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. In the gospel, there is undeniable, unending, unwavering hope of victory. And so what happens here between Paul and Bar-Jesus It's not a war, but it's a skirmish. The war has already been won. You know, Jesus, at the resurrection, defeated Satan. The powers of darkness are defeated. But, you know, I think there are two common responses that we can make that that are, like, at opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to spiritual evil. And I think both are unbiblical. One is to ignore it completely as if it doesn't exist and to just dismiss it. And the other is to overplay it and see Satan in everything and everywhere and sort of like everything that goes wrong, oh, it's it's an attack of the devil. We saw last week that human beings are perfectly capable of attacking the gospel. But we see here that the um, the spiritual forces of darkness will also do the same. As followers of Jesus, we do not need to live in fear. Just say that. As followers of Jesus, we do not live, we do not need to live in fear. Don't be afraid of those things that God has under his feet. Do not be afraid of those things. The Bible is clear. Satan is a defeated enemy. Final victory is at hand. Look what happens to this false prophet. Paul 
um, speaks with him, and he's blinded for a time. I wonder whether there is part of Paul thinking, well, that had happened to him, hadn't it? Paul had experienced blindness on the Damascus Road, and through that, he'd come to a point of encountering Jesus. I wonder whether he's hoping the same for this man here. But the result of all this, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, sees what happens and believes. Verse 12, he's amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now, are you amazed this morning by what Jesus has done? I don't just mean slightly amazed. But are you truly amazed at what Jesus has done? That not only is your personal sin forgiven, but that the power of death itself, the power of Satan and all the forces of darkness are defeated. Are we amazed by that? You know, sometimes I don't think we're amazed enough. We're very polite and we we just sit here looking all smart. But we're not actually that amazed. Can I ask you again? Are you amazed? Yes, that's better. You know, the bigger our view of Jesus this morning, the greater our view of the power of the resurrection, of the returning, risen, victorious Lord, the greater our sense of um, desire to see other people reach for Jesus will be. If we're at the point at the end of this verse, the end of these verses, thinking, you know, it's amazing what Jesus has done, we'll be straight back to verse two. We'll be worshiping, we'll be praying, we'll be fasting, and we'll be led by the Holy Spirit. You see, this is what actually happens. The result of worship is mission. When we worship Jesus, when we see him as he is, and we worship him, we just want other people to know about him. We want to share Jesus. The result of mission is worship. If we go out into Lim and we're sort of reaching people with the gospel and people come into the church because they have encountered the risen Christ, they become worshippers. See how that goes round in a circle. Worship and mission linked together. Are we led or are we driven this morning? Do we want to be individuals and a church who is led by the Holy Spirit or are we just going to keep driving ourselves? Are we going to be led or are we going to be driven? Are we serious about seeking what the Holy Spirit will say to the church? With all those things, with the prophets, with the teaching, with the worship, with the fasting, with the prayer, that context of the Holy Spirit speaking. But are we serious about listening for his voice? You know, I just hope and pray that as a church, we keep going back to verse 2. We keep coming back to worship and prayer and fasting and saying, okay, God, what next? What now? We may find ourselves in places of opposition, but then where do we go back to? Lord, will you lead us? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning we thank you that you have defeated the powers of darkness. Thank you that as we come to communion in a few moments that it reminds us not only of your death, that place where you took our sin and our shame and our guilt and restored relationship with you, but that it reminds us that you are risen, conquering king who is returning. And Lord Jesus, we await for that great day when that victory is sealed at your return. And Lord, I want to pray for us as a church that you will help us to be led by your spirit. You will help us to take time to, to see what the spirit is saying to the church. And Lord, that you will give us obedience to your words. Lord, I also want to pray particularly for those here this morning who may be feeling that actually you're up against it at the moment and you're not sure whether that is 
something spiritual or whether it's just something human. Lord, would you just encourage us to know that you have that final victory? The God who commands the host of heaven is on our side. So Lord, as we take bread and wine in a few moments, help us to remember all that you have done. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.